Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20, our text this morning will be verses 24 to 29. We are in the account of the resurrection and the appearances of our Lord Jesus, appearing to the women, appearing to the disciples. This morning, as we go over this passage, our Lord is appearing to Thomas. Uh, Thomas, as we will find, was not with the other disciples And perhaps there are reasons behind that as we will try to explore. We don't want to read too much into the passage itself, but we do want to try to understand as best as we can perhaps some of the circumstances that were indeed going on. This is a beautiful picture of our Lord in his ministry, his ministering to his disciples, specifically Thomas here. But we saw it last week as he had announced to his disciples, peace be with you. How it was so needed that they themselves hear those words. As you think about everything that had occurred up to that point as we've been going over. They had told our Lord, as Peter had said to him, I'm ready to die for you. We will not desert you. All of this. They even started to question among themselves the night of the the Passover. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? All of this sort of thing. And then whenever... Everything happened the way that it did. Jesus is going to be arrested. They scatter. Peter's going to deny him three times. It is not a good time for the disciples. It is a time of shame, of guilt, of embarrassment, humiliation, a sense of loss, sorrow. And our Lord had appeared to them in our passage last week. And instead of rebuking them, instead of being very harsh towards them because of their failures. Instead, he was very loving to them. He was very patient. He was very kind, compassionate. And that is indeed the character of our Lord towards those that are his. So often we, we wait for the Lord to rebuke us very harshly because of failures. And we, if, if it isn't the Lord that is doing it, it is ourselves. We beat, beat ourselves up very badly when it comes to our own failures in our lives. But what we find is a gracious and merciful and compassionate God who does not treat us as those who are in rebellion against him, but he treats us as sons and daughters of the great king. And we receive such great grace from him. So in our passage tonight, we're going to see the Lord's ministry specifically to Thomas. We're going to see the things that Thomas himself had perhaps been enduring, experiencing, and how our Lord brings him out of despair and brings him to one of the greatest confessions of the very identity of our Lord Jesus in all the Gospel of John. So let's give our attention to the Holy Scripture. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days... His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would 
apply this passage to our hearts, giving us understanding, guiding us through this passage that we may understand it as best as we can, to rejoice in it, to be at peace with the words of our Lord here. We pray that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us. We pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word, Father. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so in the sequence of events, we talked about how the women had went to the tomb the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. They'd went there to finish anointing the body of our Lord, found the tomb to be empty. Mary Magdalene runs back to the disciples, specifically Peter and John. They've stolen the body. At this time, most likely, is when the angels had appeared to the other women. Mary, John, Peter run back. They look into the, the tomb. They find it empty. They see the grave clothes. They walk away wondering what had occurred while John himself, it is recorded that he believed. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, announces to her to go to his disciples and to say the things that he had said to her, which that he ascends to the Father. And so she and the other women, they go back apparently as in the events, and they had told the disciples, they have seen the Lord. We have the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them, and then he disappears before their eyes after he blesses the food at their house. So the disciples on the road to Emmaus link up with the other disciples. They're in the room. It's locked. They're telling about what had happened, and the Lord appears to them. The Lord gives them words of peace. He, he breathes on them in this symbolic gesture of, of receiving the Holy Spirit because it's going to be the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that will empower the church for the work of ministry to be his disciples, or excuse me, to be his witnesses. Witnesses of the new covenant, witnesses of the resurrection of the gospel itself. But what we read then is that Thomas was not among the twelve. Even though they're not twelve, now Judas has went and hung himself, but they're still referred to as the twelve. John tells us that Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means the, the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And you have to wonder, you have to ask the question, why was Thomas not there? Surely, if the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus are contacting the other disciples, and the other disciples are reaching out to others because the women had told them that he was risen from the dead, that they had seen him, surely they would have reached out to Thomas. But why was Thomas not there? Considering the words that we read hereafter about what Thomas says, it is very likely that Thomas was just in a state of despair. And wanted to seclude himself. Perhaps that is the reason that he wanted to seclude himself. He didn't want to be around anyone. That he saw only, with everything that had transpired, he saw only the extinction of all hope. And here he probably feels much guilt and much shame, just as the rest of the disciples did. Because it was Thomas, in his courageous words, we would look at as, as kind of silly in some sense, but they were courageous words. In John chapter 11, as Jesus tells his disciples that we're going to go to Bethany, Lazarus is asleep. And finally, Jesus comes out and says, Lazarus is dead, and we're going to go there. Because the disciples are telling Jesus, they want to seek your life there. Why are we going back there? And so Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep, and I must wake him. He tells him finally, he's dead. And Thomas says to the rest of them, come, let us go die with him. And so you have Thomas that is saying words like that that would, that would seem to be a little bit of bravery on his part. He knows that they're going to the very place in which they hate the Lord, in which they want to kill him, and they have tried to kill him a number of times. Thomas was also the one back in the upper room when Jesus has said to his disciples in John chapter 14 that in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that was Thomas speaking to the Lord. Lord, where are you going? He was committed. He was devoted. And yet, in the time in which Jesus is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, he's going to be arrested in the garden. He's one of the disciples along with the others that flee. He runs away. And so Thomas probably feels a lot of guilt and shame after showing such commitment to the Lord. He wasn't one that was wishy-washy. It wasn't that at all by the words that he spoke earlier that is recorded in the Gospel of John. He was one who was committed and devoted. And so when everything happens and the one to whom he was devoted so greatly to was gone, he had left him, he had abandoned him, he is now dead. Thomas secludes himself. It was, it was more, most likely that the rest of the disciples would have reached out to Thomas. Everybody else is there. They got word to everybody else. Why wasn't Thomas there? Most likely it wasn't because of a lack of not understanding where he was at or knowing where he was at. It was that he was just so much in despair that he didn't want to be there. He didn't want to hear it. He was in great pain, and his great pain had produced this hopelessness in him. And so he secluded himself to stay away from everyone, not willing to be a part of any of the things that are being said here. Maybe to him it was nonsense. Now, we come down very hard on Thomas, and he has that nickname, Doubting Thomas, we're very similar to Thomas. Because I can say for my own self in the time of, of my disappointments and despair and, and different things that are going on in my life that caused me sorrow, the very thing that, that I do, that I know I do, is I don't want to be around anyone. I want to be secluded. I want to stay to myself. I don't want to be around anyone. And what that ends up doing to me, and you can... You can judge this for yourself in your own life. What it ends up doing is causing greater pain and sorrow because when you think about whatever it is that's going on or has happened or whatever, you begin to think about what-if scenarios or you begin to think about maybe they're saying this and maybe this is being said and, and you get this whole conversation thing going on in your head which only adds to your sorrow. And so it furthers you in your own self-pity. We're just like Thomas. We're just like him. We don't want to be part of any, any words of hope at the moment because we don't want to hear it. It's nonsense to us. And so we seclude ourselves. But because Thomas had done that, because Thomas did not want to be part of what was happening or even be in the conversation to see what, it, what actually did take place, not to be among his brothers, those that he loved dearly, that loved him. He ended up missing the appearance of our Lord and missing the words that he needed to hear. That Jesus told the other disciples, peace be with you. Thomas needed that. Thomas needed to hear that. But because of his own stubbornness maybe, because of his own unbelief as we see, he ended up missing it, secluding himself, remaining in his sorrow. You know, we talk about a lot of, of the, the need, as the scripture tells us, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If we go on in that passage, it says, but encourage one another. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It isn't just to, to be... Uh, filling up a seat within the church. 
It's not just to, to show up just so other people can see that you're there and nobody's going to bother you and you just want to make your showing and leave. It is because that we need each other. Because life happens and life is going to happen and there are so many different circumstances that we find ourselves in that cause us grief and pain. And the very thing that we need to do is to be around other believers who will indeed encourage us and to love us. Now there's a way to do that. There's a way not to do it. Sometimes we come up with little nice sayings or whatever to try to make each other feel good and we don't need none of that. A lot of times when we're enduring such sorrow and despair, what we need is just to have each other there. Your presence there matters greatly. And so we say sometimes, well, you know, I don't need anyone there. I don't need to be part of that. Well, perhaps they need you. We need each other. I need you. Jason needs you. We all need each other. This isn't just a situation in which we come on Sunday mornings just to hear something and then we go our separate ways. No, we like to see what's going on in each other's lives after hearing the word of God, after being ministered by the word of God. What is happening in your life and how can I pray for you? Sometimes we rejoice with each other. Sometimes we weep with each other. But we need each other and we have one another. And we need that in our life. Not to forsake it. Not to seclude ourselves. Which is so easy to do and I'm, I'm just as guilty. But we need each other. For this very purpose to help bring us out of our own sorrow and despair. So, Thomas, not there. And obviously there is a time in which they do contact him, which is very important as well, and we'll look at that in a minute. But God's word says, so the other disciples were saying to him, and the idea is that they kept saying to him, this is continuing to say to him, we have seen the Lord. He should have believed the testimony of his brothers and the women. But again, being in that kind of a pain and sorrow only furthered his unbelief. And this is a very hard-hearted unbelief that he is experiencing. He doesn't even ask for a sign. It's like, okay, if he has really risen from the dead, then I want to see a sign. No, no, no. He doesn't even ask for a sign. He says, I want to see his hands and his feet and his side, I want to touch him. And if not, don't bother me with this. That's basically what he's saying. I don't want to hear it. He wanted hard evidence. His sorrow kept him from believing. He refuses to believe without it. Again, he only saw uh, the, the loss of hope and the, the loss of courage. A.W. A. W. Pink says this, he reminds us very much of John Bunyan's fearing, despondency, and much afraid in his pilgrim's progress. Types of a large class of Christians who are successors of Doubting Thomas, end quote. I'm not going to believe unless I have hard evidence. Now, again... Coming down on Thomas, as we often do, and we nickname him Dadding Thomas and all that, as we see that we're very similar to him, he's really no better than the other disciples at this point. Because the other disciples, as they had heard, you have Peter and John, they run to the tomb. Peter, he's looking into the tomb, and he's trying to theorize what exactly has happened. He's not just outright believing. John did, but not Peter. They're not, they're not even accepting the testimony of the women who actually saw the vision of the angels and Mary who saw the Lord. Not until the Lord appeared to them. So in that sense, Thomas is really no different than them. He's very much in the same, in the same camp as them as far as their unbelief of hearing of the resurrection of our Lord. Now, Thomas had no right, obviously, to ask this, for this kind of proof. 
And there's going to be a very mild rebuke that our Lord gives to him, even though he's still being compassionate to him. But the truth of the matter is this. We see that a lot. We hear that a lot. People want hard evidence. Now, for Thomas, because he had already had faith in the Lord, it actually produced the greater faith in him when he did see the Lord. But you think of that whole scenario of people wanting to see signs and they want to see hard evidence as far as an appearance of our Lord. There's evidence for the Christian faith, absolutely. But people want to see hard evidence in the sense of seeing something. They want to see the Lord. They want him to make an appearance or whatever or to do something magnificent that it would be undeniable. You know that Pharaoh, Pharaoh saw all the works of our Lord in Egypt and was still in his rebellion. Signs and miracles and all of that does not produce faith. Just as soon as it may come, something else will take its place then. Well, yeah, but what about this? Why? Because the heart that is desperately wicked, the heart that is dead in its trespasses and sins and is by nature a child of wrath, will refuse to believe even given the greatest of evidences. So we cannot take what Thomas is saying here as, as, a, as an example of how we ought to be petitioning the Lord. We'll actually see much differently as we work our way through here. But notice something there. Thomas is now within the, the gathering and this is important for us to recognize, how did he get there? Why is he there now? It is because the testimony, by the, by the testimony of the rest of the disciples, what they have seen themselves now. It's not just they go to Thomas and say, well, the women are saying that he appeared to them or they, they saw visions of angels and all of this. Thomas is like, I don't want to hear it. Now the disciples go, we've seen him too. They're seeking after the one who isn't there. Thomas is there now because they sought after him. Otherwise, he would have remained where he was at. And that is a great example of how we ought to do for each other. We say to ourselves as we look over the congregation or we, we're looking in our pews and we're seeing who's here and who isn't, well, we can't really do anything because we can't really make them come or whatever. We come up with all kinds of things, and granted, we cannot. But what we can do is to still reach out and to seek them out because they're, they're part of the church. They're part of the body of Christ. They're part of the family of God that we have here in the local church. And this is what the rest of the disciples have done. They have reached out to him. They have sought after him. Who knows what conversations they had with him. Just, just come on. Just, just leave, leave your despair in your house. And just come with us and just listen. And either, however that worked out, he's there. And he's there because his brothers had reached out to him. Ultimately, you can't make somebody do anything. But what you can do is to do your part in trying to reach them. Trying to bring them back. To seek after those that are not here. Because that's showing love and compassion, showing patience to them, recognizing they're, they're part of us. We don't want them to be here just so we can have them to put money in an offering plate. We don't want them to be here just so we can fill another seat. We want them to be here because we love them and we want to see them grow in Christ just as every one of us are trying to grow in Christ. They're part of our family. And so we seek after them. Well, I don't really jive well with their, with their personality. We just, we, we clash a lot. And granted, there's a lot of differences in personalities. That's very true. But the one thing that unites us that far outweighs any differences in our personalities is being united in the Spirit of God. Having the same Lord who died for us. The same father who calls us his children. Differences in personality mean nothing because we have a greater bond in the spirit of God. And so we seek after those that aren't here to show them love, 
and compassion to help them be encouraged to come back and to start to start fresh and that's what they did for Thomas now Thomas he's not believing he makes stipulations as to how he will believe only he says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is very emphatic. I will not believe. So eight days later, eight days later, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. And this time, Thomas is with them. They have kept Thomas coming into the gathering and perhaps trying to encourage him, no doubt, to to see and to understand that they have really seen the Lord. And so this time, he's there. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now we're seeing this this ministry of our Lord to Thomas. He says the very words that he said to the other disciples. Peace be with you. No doubt great turmoil is going on in Thomas as we see in his very words that he's speaking and how he secluded himself beforehand. What sorrow is in his heart. And Jesus comes and he doesn't say, you should have been here. I had some great words for you if you'd have just been here the first time. He says, no. He says the very same thing. To Thomas in order to minister directly to him. Peace be with you. It's not just that greeting of shalom. He's not just saying hi. He is speaking words of truth in order to minister to the heart of Thomas. Peace, Thomas. Peace be with you. My peace, as he says to them beforehand. Not as the world gives. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Thomas, it's yours. Don't wrestle in your heart no longer. Don't be ashamed. Don't be guilty. He says, see my hands, my side. He is showing Thomas the very very wounds that he suffered so greatly for on the cross. That through them and the wrath of God being poured out upon him, he satisfied the justice of his father for Thomas. And so he says to Thomas, Thomas, be at peace. Peace be with you, Thomas. Not just... Peace in your heart, but know you have peace with God. Here is the the, the sign. These are the very wounds that I endured for your redemption. He's ministering to Thomas. Now, you see some things here as Jesus is is speaking to him. And the, the very thing that we've talked about already is that Jesus repeated his earlier words to Thomas. He didn't mind to repeat the same thing in order to bring comfort to the disciple who perhaps wasn't there. To preach the same thing, the same words, the same truth. Thomas needed peace and relief from his shame and guilt. And Jesus didn't mind to repeat what he said beforehand to the rest of the disciples. And thank God that he doesn't mind to repeat the very things that he says because we so often forget. That's why it is so necessary for us to to constantly be within the word of God, reminding ourselves of what it is that he has said. So that in the time of sorrows and pains that come in our life, we don't forget that it's still fresh on our minds. Our Lord said, peace be with you. He has given me peace in my life. Even in the midst of this pain that I'm enduring, even now, oh Lord, you give me peace. And we've got to preach these things back to ourselves, so there is a lot of repetition there. And don't think that just, we just need to hear it one time and we got it. <laughs> that old hymn is so, so applicable, Come Thou Fount, when it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is, this is what I'm prone to do. I'm, I'm, so, I'm always enticed by something, trying to be lured away by something. Remind me of your truths, O oh Lord. Those truths need to be reiterated 
constantly. That is a reason, I believe, why the Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 1, when he speaks to the, the church at Rome, he identifies them as the saints who are in Rome. And then as you get through the first chapter there, he says, I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel to you. Well, they're converted. He already identified them as saints, but he's going to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because the gospel isn't just for the lost to come to faith. The gospel is for us to be reminded of what our Lord has done. And so there needs to be that reminder. And to remind us some more, this is what Christ has done. Be joyful in the Lord because of this. Rejoice in him because of this. So that's one thing. Our Lord doesn't mind to repeat what it is that he had said previously. Notice that Thomas didn't need to touch him. He says, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe. But when the risen and glorified Christ stood before him and showed him his wounds, there was no need for him to touch. He didn't need to touch the Lord because he saw the cause of redemption in the wounds of our Lord. He saw what Jesus had done. And it also was a proof that he was really dead and he was truly, physically alive. Jesus didn't appear as a phantom. He appeared bodily, physically, and he shows his wounds. Thomas just needed to see. That because of his wounds, because of his suffering, because of his death, there's no need to feel guilt any longer. No more shame, Thomas. Do not let your failures haunt you any longer, for Jesus has paid for them. That's all he needed. He just needed to see. And you think of the the care that Jesus is showing specifically to Thomas. Again, there's, there's perhaps a mild rebuke that is here, but there isn't any harsh words to Thomas, even though that he has, he has made this standard and he says, unless this happens, I will not believe. And again, he had no right to ask for that kind of proof, but our Lord condescends to him. And he shows him. He had ministered to Thomas in the way in which he had demanded. This isn't, again, a way in which we need to pray unto the Lord or take an example from Thomas. But it is to say that that our Lord did, did fulfill exactly what Thomas needed in order that his faith would be restored. He showed great patience with Thomas and compassion with Thomas. For that is the character of our Lord. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in in loving kindness. All of this language that we read all through the scriptures. And he is these things to his, his people, to those that are his. I think during times of sin and during times of our failures, which we, we fail every day. Let's just understand that we do. We fail every day. And I think a lot of the times we, we're, we're, more, uh, we're more harder on ourselves than what our Lord is. We beat ourselves up constantly. And what does our Lord say? Peace be with you. I'm not talking about sins in which we blatantly commit and we're out committing or whatever and we're in constant rebellion. We find ourselves every day failing in some way. I shouldn't have done that. Surely this, I should be over this by now. I shouldn't be struggling with this. I shouldn't have said that. Why can I not control my tongue? Whatever else. And so we beat ourselves up. We're more, again, more, more harder on ourselves than our, than our Lord seems to be. Because he shows us great compassion And pity, as a father pitieth his children. Patience. For that is the very character of God. Again, 
When you look at all of Jesus' ministry, you see what great compassion that he has. If you want to know what God is like, not only do you have the Old Testament scriptures which describe his character to you, but all you have to do is look to Christ. What is God like? What does it say about Christ? How did he interact with sinners? What compassion did he show? For he is full of compassion and full of grace. And he ministers to Thomas, granting Thomas what he had asked for in order that his faith would once again be restored. And as a result of Jesus' ministry to Thomas and his patience with him and that compassion and that, that grace that he extended to him, you have one of the greatest confessions in all of the Gospel of John. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He's acknowledging not just, this isn't just a nice way of saying, Oh, sir, uh, wow, you're here. We're looking at this Greek word, which is kurios, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Adonai. He's saying, my master, my sovereign, and my God. This is a great confession of the very identity of Jesus Christ. Probably the greatest in all the Gospel of John. And it's actually very climactic because you have at the beginning of the Gospel of John, you have John 1.1, 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you have Thomas confessing that very thing at Jesus' resurrection, my Lord and my God. It is the climax of the Gospel of John. It's what he's leading to. This is the confession. And it comes from the one that, that we're uh, most hard on, which is Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You think of some of the confessions that were all through the Gospel of John. You have John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 34, who says, This is the Son of God. You have Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 49. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. The Samaritans. They said, This one is indeed the Savior of the world. In chapter 4, verse 42. You have the man who was born blind. He says this, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And he believed that Jesus was the Son of Man and worshipped him. That's in chapter 9, verses 33 to 38. You have Martha. She says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who is to come into the world. In chapter 11, verse 27. And the disciples themselves confess in chapter 16, verse 30. We believe that you came from God. And you have Thomas. You have Thomas's confession, which is the climax. My Lord and my God. That is acknowledging exactly who he is. He is your Lord and your God. He is your master. He is your sovereign. He is the mighty one that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is the one who has extended grace to you in his son, the Lord Jesus. And this whole scenario as well, again, you have this bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is so vital to understand. And the fact that he's showing Thomas his wounds is a testimony to that. Because you're going to have John who's going to be addressing the Gnostics later on, at least an early form of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believe in what was called docetism, which is that he seemed, it's, he seemed to be in the flesh. But from their point of view... Matter, flesh is evil, spirit is good. There ain't no way that Jesus could have came in the flesh. And the fact is that John is recording, yes, he came in the flesh. He showed his wounds. He was bodily resurrected. And that is important also, as we've talked about before about the resurrection, because Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and that, and that in itself secures our bodily resurrection at the consummation of all things. Jesus didn't come just to redeem your spirit or your soul. He came to redeem the whole man, body and soul. It also refutes the Jehovah's Witness idea too. As Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God, he is acknowledging Jesus to be his only sovereign, the master, 
You think of the word Adonai within the Old Testament. That's the highest exalted name or exalted title of God in the Old Testament. And then you have his sacred name, which is Yahweh. You have Isaiah 6, which is one of the beloved passages where Jesus is referred to in that passage. John says that the one that Isaiah saw was Jesus. And he is called Adonai, and he is called Yahweh in that passage. Here Thomas is confessing this as well. My Lord and my God. Acknowledging his bodily resurrection, which the Jehovah's Witnesses also deny. They think he was spiritually resurrected. And they think he's spiritually resurrected because he didn't come back in the time that he, they said that he would. So they had to reinterpret their ideas of things. But here's what Jesus says to Thomas. And it is, it is a mild rebuke. Because Thomas demanded these things. Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they. Listen to this. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. James Montgomery Boyce, he says this. He is speaking of the faith that is satisfied with what God provides and is therefore not yearning for visions, miracles, esoteric experiences, or various forms of success as evidence of God's favor. More than that, he is saying that a faith without these things is not inferior to, but is actually superior to a faith based upon them. He goes on to say, The blessings of the gospel are for those who live by faith and not by sight, who live by their faith in the character and benevolence of God and not in the evidences of visions, miracles, or other such experiences, end quote. Jesus isn't saying to Thomas, that is great, Thomas, I'm so grateful that you believe because you saw me. In one sense, he is ministering to, uh, to, ministering to Thomas as we've been talking about. He is restoring his faith, but he says something even more so, that you believe because you see me. But blessed are those who haven't and yet believed. And what he is saying is so true of us today. We, we like to think to ourselves, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to think. We, we want to, to think, wow, I wish I would have been there. I wish I could have seen the Lord. I wish I, wish I could have sat at his feet. I wish I could have been there to have seen him. And what Jesus himself says from the very lips of our Lord, he pronounces a blessing on those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you realize that you are more blessed than any of those who actually heard him, who saw him? That's what he's saying. That isn't something just as a nice, nice little thought for us to, to think upon. This is the words of our Lord. This is what he says. This is exactly what he's saying. You are more blessed because you haven't seen him and yet believed. Do you think of it that way? Have you considered that? The great blessing that you have. Is, is in, in the very reality of you not seeing him. What blessings are we talking about? Well, the very blessings that all believers experience. The blessings of salvation have come to you. It is the Spirit of God who has made you alive in, in order to call upon Christ and to believe in the one that you haven't seen and to love the one that you haven't seen and to desire the one that you haven't seen. It is the Spirit of God who has done this work in you to, that, that, that makes us come to this this result of saying, I don't need visions, I don't need miracles, I don't need to see some kind of a sign, I believe. And the one in whom I believe, I love, and I am devoted. How does that happen? How can that happen that you have such great affection for one that you've never seen? And that is because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God who gives us eyes of faith to see. To call upon Christ, our great God and Lord. 
to remember what it is that he's done for us and make us yearn for him all the more by remembering what he has done, seeing the love of God. One writer says, What often wins us is not well-reasoned arguments, but the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ Jesus. Listen to what Spurgeon says. This is what Spurgeon had written. He says, in these times, this is a little lengthy, but, but just please give your attention. In these times when the foundations of our faith are constantly being undermined, one is sometimes driven to say to himself, suppose it is not true. As I stood the other night beneath the sky and watched the stars, I felt my heart going up to the great maker with all the love that I was capable of. I said to myself, what made me love God as I know I do? What made me feel an anxiety to be like him in purity? Whatever made me long to obey my God cannot be a lie. I know that it was the love of Jesus for me that changed my heart and made me, though once careless and indifferent to him, now to pant with strong desires to honor him. What has done this? Not a lie, surely. A truth, then, has done it. I know it by its fruits. If the Bible were to turn out untrue, and if I died and went before my Maker, could I not say to him, I believe great things of thee, great God? If it be not so, yet did I honor thee by the faith I had concerning thy wondrous goodness and thy power to forgive? And I would cast myself upon his mercy without fear. But we do not entertain such doubts, for those dear wounds continually prove the truth of the gospel and the truth of our salvation by it. Incarnate deity is a thought that was never invented by a poet's mind, nor reasoned out by a philosopher's skill. Incarnate deity, the notion of the God that lived and bled and died in human form instead of guilty man, is itself its own best witness. The wounds are the infallible witness of the gospel of Christ. Spurgeon. It is the very love of God that we see within the scriptures that the spirit enhances in our hearts that makes us yearn for him even more. This is a work of the spirit of God in us to produce this in us. That we love him all the more, that we are committed to him all the more, And Jesus says you're blessed because of it. You are blessed. All the blessings of salvation have come to you. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he lavished on us all the riches of his grace. They've been lavished upon you. Salvation as a whole. You think of all the blessings that have come to you that are a work of God. You take the effectual calling of God, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, being granted faith, and through that faith that has been granted to you, you've been justified in the sight of God. You're adopted into the family of God. You're sanctified. The the chains of sin have, have been broken. You're no longer under its mastery, and He is gradually conforming you to be conformed to the image of Christ. You have a union with Christ that cannot be severed. Neither death nor life nor any created thing can separate you. He has preserved you in his hand that you continue to believe throughout the remainder of your life. And he promises, and this is a promise having nothing to do with anything that we did, but he promises that he will glorify us. You have such great blessings that have come to you in your life, and you haven't even seen him. But how much more blessed are you because of it? That is what Jesus is saying. Blessed are they who haven't seen and yet believed, your friends, you are truly blessed. And because you're blessed, and because we recognize the love of God that has been shown to us, and we recognize how how much the Spirit of God ministers to our hearts in our times of need, and He reminds us of the very things that we need to know constantly, then these are the things that we also do for each other. We are to love each other as God loves us. And so having all of this that is granted to us out of a pure act of his grace. Then let us also do for one another. So that 
when we see others that are in their time of sorrow and in their time of pain and suffering, we say to them, peace be with you. This is what the Lord says. And we seek them out if they're not here in order to bring them in and to show them once again through the scriptures the love of God that has been shown to them that their countenance will be lifted up once more unto our Lord. This is the kind of love that we give. This is the kind of ministering that we do for one another. This is what we find here in this passage of scripture that our Lord does for his own and what the disciples had done for Thomas. So let us not love in word alone, but in word and deed. And let us take the example of our Lord and begin to apply it to one another. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we again thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that we learn from it. And Father, thank you. Thank you for the great encouragement and peace and comfort that you give Father, in our time of need. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You tell us in your word some gracious truths. He, do, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Truly you have given us all things in Christ Jesus. You have lavished them upon us. Oh, Father, let us indeed appreciate what it is that you've done let us grow in our our joy recognizing what you have done and let us reach out to others and remind them as well that they too could be brought along and we would show that love to them not to leave them behind but to bring them along with us that we are all on this journey together and we all need each other father i pray that you do a mighty work within our hearts applying this passage if there are any here that do not know you, I pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work in them, that you would take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, and give them eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.